Management principles are some of the easiest topics to discuss, but some of the most challenging to put into practice. The best managers and leaders have an art in making problems so interesting and their solutions so constructive that everyone wants to get to work and deal with them. This week, I was excited to have one of tech's best thinkers on management principles come on the show. Alex McCaw, CEO of Clearbit, has recently put out a book titled The Manager's Handbook. In it, he takes his experience as one of the first employees at Twitter, first 20 at Stripe, and now leading Clearbit, a company that's raised over $20 million, and translating it to distinct principles and tactics. We discuss a ton of concepts in this conversation, how to manage yourself, personal systems of action, failure points, individual contributors versus managers, mental and physical health, and of course, leading through COVID. Alex, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Alex, really excited to have you on the show today. Um, you know, I want to dive into your perspective on management principles and remote work really deeply, which will make for a unique conversation. But before we do that, tell us a little bit more about your background, you know, being employee number 20 at Stripe and, and really the journey to founding Clearbit. Well, yeah, Stripe was a happy accident. But, you know, before I was working at Stripe, I was at a company called Twitter. You probably heard of that. Um, and I was... I think about 21, came out to the States and didn't know anyone. I was staying in a hostel and I managed to interview at a bunch of places, get my job, job at Twitter. And the idea after Twitter was to start my own thing. And then that plan got paused when I met John and Patrick and they're the, they're the founders of Stripe. And they really pitched me on coming in early at Stripe, learning a ton and then taking that to whatever I did next. So that's exactly what I did. Um, I had an amazing time there. I built a lot of um, fun products and learned a lot. I highly recommend any wannabe founder to have a similar experience at a high growth company. Uh, and then I and then I left, just found Clearbit. And so you founded Clearbit. We'll spend the bulk of our discussion on your perspective on leadership, but talk a little bit more about the company and, and its state today, especially you know, through a time like COVID-19. And, and the reason I ask that, even though you know, we'll dive in a bunch on, on management principles and such, is I find that there's a, there's a key parallel in terms of the level of insight Clearbit provides as a data company to really parallel the intentionality and specificity on, on I think, the way you think about management principles. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, uh, the data space which Clibit operates in has been a fascinating space to be in uh, the last five years. Uh, there's, a, there's a theory called dataism in the book Homodeus uh, that states that everything we do comes back to data. And in fact, this theory goes even further. It says that our life purpose is to create more data. And I'm, I don't know about that, but I do know that data underpins everything we do, every company in the world. And, you know, there's Jack Welsh saying that the team that sees reality the best is the team that wins. And the best way of seeing reality accurately is with data. And so running Clibit over the last five years has really given me an interesting insight into how some of the world's best companies, like Slack and Stripe and Zendesk, have used uh, data to power their incredible growth. So, like I said, it's been a fascinating experience. And you've used that same you know, kind of systematic approach and I think intentionality, as I was mentioning on, on the leadership and management principles side. You've written a book you know, called The Manager's Handbook. It's you know, parts and, and chapters are starting to come out uh, more, more prevalently as of recent. 
Um, I want to dive in, you know, deeply into that, but let's, let's kind of kickstart at a more 30,000 foot view. Talk a little bit about the premise of the book and, and why you wrote it. Yeah. Well, this book is a, a real labor of love for me. It's, it's a gift to the world, basically. and re- represents the journey of self-growth that I've been through. And one of my biggest life realizations has been that the periods in my life that I've been at my best self, are the periods that I've been teaching through creating, teaching through creating. So what I'd like doing is putting myself out in the world and saying, hey, I don't know much about this, but join me and come on this journey of learning and self-discovery together. And they say the best way of learning is by teaching. And that's something I internalized a long time ago. I started learning how to code by creating open source projects. And I wrote some O'Reilly programming books to teach myself how to write web apps. And then I started Clearbit, uh, my company, for the same reason, self-growth, to bring anyone curious along for the ride with me. And now we have this management book. And I, I can tell you I've learned as much about management in writing this book as I have running the company for half a decade. And uh, in fact, I think the way we're writing this book, I'm not sure if anyone has written a book quite like in, the, in this fashion before. So what I do is I write a draft chapter and then we have hundreds of reviewers who go through, these are other CEOs and managers, and they go through this draft chapter and, and they stick comments in Google Docs. And in fact, we've started a small community around it and we're all working together to make this incredible book of management. And the reason why I'm writing it is because I believe in management. I believe it can be an incredible force of good in the world. And the leverage you have improving management is just massive. But sadly, the the bar is so low right now. Managers aren't trained properly, if at all. Uh, the the books out there are you know 20 years old. Uh, high output management is a great book, but it is it's is pretty bold at this point. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of unnecessary suffering in the world due to poor management. And they, they say people don't leave companies, they leave managers. And I think it's so true. So my goal for this book is to set a new standard of management, a new bar, and help people reach that bar. Yeah, I, c- I couldn't agree more, um, both in, in personal experience of working at companies and, and leading companies, I think you see it very apparently that that people follow people not only leave managers but they also follow managers, right? Um, as as opposed to leaving and, and following specific companies. The the first chapter in the book is titled "Managing Yourself," right? And I, I think you take a, a deeper introspection into you know managers looking at themselves first and foremost before even diving into you know external tactics of interpersonal management or interpersonal relationships. One of the phrases I really liked was, you know, taking radical responsibility for your life and happiness through time management, mental health, and a commitment to grow was really the ethos, um, you know, what you think of when you think of managing yourself. Why, why are those three elements the key engines to driving control of your life and happiness? Well, yeah, you can't really help others until you have helped yourself. You know, they, they say it best on planes, you know, fix your mask before you help others. And I think the same thing applies to management. So the, the first thing you've got to bear in mind is physical and mental health. 
You need to be working out regularly. You probably need to be seeing a therapist. Um, you, you can't be helping other people unless you're there physically and mentally. And then the second is time management. Uh, time is one of the few zero-sum games we play. And I see a lot of managers actually don't manage time pretty well. And we can dive into, into that later if you'd like. And I think the third is the, the hardest to do. And this is taking responsibility for everything in your life. And this includes your emotions. Taking responsibility for why you feel and what you feel. And there's just so much blame in the world, so much finger pointing, so little accountability and asking, how am I helping causing this situation? Yeah, it's um, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting point, especially on the time management side of being a zero sum game. I I had Des Trainer of Intercom on, on the show a couple episodes back, and I thought he had a really helpful framework, which was um, or it was an insightful way for for me to reposition and kind of think of it, which was email is what others think you should work on, your to do list is what you think you should work on, and your calendar is what you actually work on. Um, and I know you have some interesting thoughts on, you know, managing your time and calendar. Talk, talk a little bit more about the way you think about um, time management specifically. And we'll, we'll dive into some details, but really time management and kind of calendar auditing. Sure. Well, what's strange is if you ask people to list out their top priorities and then you ask them to show you their calendar, rarely do you see those top priorities listed there. Mm. So I always ask in my exec team, each one on one, what are the top three most important things you need to get done by this time next week? And if they don't have a dedicated time on their calendar to do these things, I stick an hour in there every day for their top tasks. And so the first rule of time management is to ruthlessly protect your time. So like I said, time is zero sum. For one meeting to be created, another meeting must be replaced. So when people ask for meetings, what you should do is apply the brakes, add friction, ask if something can be resolved asynchronously instead. And as you know, we're all now 100% remote. Clearbit was only 40% remote prior to Clearbit. Now we're 100%. And the only way that remote works is with async communication. So design your calendar, color code your time, proactively schedule in recreation, walks, and breaks, and jealously guard your time. Talk a little bit more about about some of those those frameworks you just laid out, or some of those mechanics, right? The color coding of calendar, et cetera. How do you, when you think pragmatic, when you think tactically, I should say, you know, of a calendar audit and really having that top goal, right? When Alex comes into the week, right, or before Alex starts the week, how do you think about you know that type of calendar auditing? Well, the color really helps you understand how you're using your time and what percentage of your time is going towards one-on-ones, external meetings, um, whatever you're spending your time on. And if you've got an assistant, just ask your assistant to do this. And, and suddenly you can look at your calendar and you can actually have a good grasp of how you're spending your time. I think it's really important to proactively schedule in recreation. So gym time and uh, walks with friends because otherwise they just don't happen. If you have an extra hour on your calendar, 
then someone in your team will probably try and take it. So you need to, in advance, schedule out time for recreation. And then also, I, w I just block off entire days. No, it's actually quite difficult to get a meeting with me. I uh, don't like being in meetings. I think most of them are a waste of time. I think most of them can just be an email or a, some Google Docs that we can asynchronously collaborate on. Um, so that, that's really how I think about time. What do people miss the most in being able to execute in against that concept in the way you laid it out, right? So uh, I'll take the kind of, I'll take the, I'll, I'll put a pressure test, you know, what you were just saying and say, I think there's nothing um, uniquely insightful there from the perspective of um, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty common sense type advice, but I think in execution, in actually executing it, it's very, very challenging, right? So I, I can imagine a lot of people listening to this episode or this conversation saying, yep, that makes a lot of sense, but in practicality, still not really executing against it. Why, and I'm sure you see that, I see that in my company, I'm sure you see that in your company, um, I've seen it in other companies, and I, I have a theory on this, but wh why, wh what is the, what do you think is the disconnect behind the, you know, actual understanding of the concept and then the execution of it? Is it, you know, people having a system, a personal system, and I know you've got some, you know, some thoughts on that, but how do you think about that disconnect? Yeah, you know why? It's because secretly, I think people want to be miserable they 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 want to be so so busy because they like heroing and i'm especially talking about ceos here and what i mean by heroing is they like going in doing the work being the hero saving the day setting a good example to the rest of their team and in my opinion this is not how you become a good ceo um you have to Delegate. You have to delegate things, and if you and if you find if you look at your calendar and it's just full full of back to back stuff, and you're complaining that you don't have enough time for yourself, well, remember, you have agency. You can design your calendar any way that you want. It it just is about taking back control over your calendar and not letting the tail wag the dog. That resonates a lot. Actually, it was one of the lessons that I had to learn personally in leading an organization. And I think often folks have to really think through when making the shift from, you know, also from IC to manager. Um, what we often talk about in our company is, you know, being promoted to management is not necessarily a promotion per se. It's a, it's a fully different role and it's a fully different skill set, right? And it's not an end in and of itself, but it's a different yeah. responsibility in a company. Well, well Clibbit, we don't give you any more money when you become a manager. Hmm. Interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's a different career. It's not a promotion. If you want to be a manager, sure, be, we, will, we will help you become that, but uh, it's not, we're not going to promote you into it. It's an entirely different profession. Um, this is one of the biggest problems with managers because if you think about how people become managers, they generally are really good individual contributors. And then... They either want to go into management or they think to themselves, the only way that I can progress in my career is going to management because the company has clearly indicated that with, the, um, with how people are comp compensated. So then they go into management and they don't actually enjoy it. 
um, and they become bad managers. And then you've lost a great individual contributor and you've gained a bad manager. So the key thing is to make sure that people are not incentivized to become managers. Certainly not with compensation. And there's, there's actual, you know, cash comp compensation that's obvious, but there's other hidden forms of comp compensation like information asymmetry that you have to take into account. Yeah, I, I really like that framing because I think that's right, which is the incentive structure often in terms of a more kind of linear or hierarchical type of organization setup is you are incentivized um, to keep climbing the ladder, which by default, if you're not intentional about the way that you um, design your org can be a lot of great ICs going up in the management and not just for cash comp, but for access, for influence, information asymmetry, a whole host of different types of things. Um, and, and one of the things I think that the strongest organizations have is they've kind of found, they've, they've thought through ICs and managers really more like a sports team, right? Which is by definition, you know, the point guard, I'm a big basketball fan, so I use the basketball analogy, but the point guard by definition is not, you know, more valuable than the shooting guard, you know, or the center. They're all right. different roles on a team that have to figure out how to coexist, right? To push the team forward. And they have, they're very distinct and different roles, right? One is not necessarily you know, higher than another. Um, yeah, and you should, and that your compensation structure should represent that. You have, should have two tracks so ICs can continue uh, increasing on your compensation ladder without going into management. I think that's actually how I've seen a lot of IC, good ICs or even good, you know, folks that want to be managers, right, or continue on a manager track actually exit organizations. And I think it goes back to Alex, the way you were framing it earlier is that people leave managers. And I think that's, that's, you know, typically when you're looking at those levels, um, you know, someone on the executive team or a CEO is effectively a manager, right? And I, I often see people leave leadership teams, you know, um, because of that, of that nuance of kind of a dual track not being there. And it actually, if you think about it at scale, it affects the productivity, I think, in the direction of a company quite significantly, right? Because it's a churn, it's basically a churn factory at the top for some of the people that are the most successful in getting through kind of other gates or other design, you know, either intentional design elements or, or design flaws in the way you've thought about your org structure. Yeah, totally. So you, when you think about a system and in uh, a personal system, you, know, you coined an interesting kind of phrase, right? GTD, and it's got five components, capture, clarify, organize, reflect, engage. Talk a little bit more about that system, what the acronym means. And then, you know, those, those five components and why those are the components, you know, of an effective personal system. Yeah, to be clear, uh, this was invented by people much smarter than me. Um, like everything, I've pretty much stolen it all. But GTD is a great uh, task management system. It's very, very simple. Um, the first step is getting everything out of your brain. So your brain was made for having ideas, not holding them. So holding stuff in your brain will just give you anxiety. If you've ever woken up in the middle of the night thinking about all the things you have to do, that's because you haven't written, written them down. It's such a very calming activity. A lot of people don't like to write down all the things they have to do because A, they'll, they're worried that they'll get overwhelmed by that list, and B, there's going to be things on the, that list that they reneged on, some promises they made to other people or, or to themselves, and it's going to be painful to look at and to come to terms with. So a lot of people just never, never do it. Um, so once you've got everything listed out, 
prioritize it, and then execute. And again, this might sound like simple advice, and it is, but I asked the team at Clibit if they were using a task manager or if they'd heard of GTD, and most people haven't. Most people weren't, which is amazing to me. I don't know how you can achieve anything in life uh, from the mundane to your life dreams without a system. I empathize with that a lot because I often think in the same way, which is without having, and it doesn't have to be clarity on output or kind of where, you know, specifically you want to go. But if there's not an organizing mechanism and there's not a, we talk a lot about in, in tech, we talk a lot about feedback loops, even in company building, you know, I run a non-tech business candidly, and we, we talk a lot about feedback loops, iteration cycles, et cetera. Um, and I think without that type of personal reflective cycle and clarifying cycle, it can be it can be quite challenge you know to accomplish anything. I I'm curious, Alex, from your perspective, and and this may have a different answer in a COVID timeframe or not, but I'm curious what you see as the biggest failure points in leaders and senior managers. I know you know if I reflect, you know one of the things I'm constantly solving for is and and continuing to kind of learn how to do and learn how to get better at is minimizing context switching. Right. I think once you lead an organization of a certain scale, we've got about 100 people in our organization, it's very easy. I can very easily find myself in reactive mode and in the weeds on a wide variety of issues if, if I'm not proactive and I'm not thoughtful about constructing a schedule in which I'm minimizing context switching. Yeah. So there are four areas that I see managers making mistakes in time and time again. So those areas are hearing, not prioritizing hiring, not firing, and ruinous empathy. And let me go into what I mean by those four things. So heroing, again, like we said earlier, how do people become managers? Well, they're, they're great ICs. So often when a manager has a problem uh, something's not getting done or maybe not getting done to the quality they wanted to, they go back into IC mode. They put on that IC hat and they start heroing. But that's not the point of management. The point of management is to scale yourself. As soon as you're heroing, then you're doing a disservice to the rest of your team. So I see that happen quite a lot. And in startups, sometimes it is inevitable that you have to step in and you have to hero and do something uh, to just to keep the business alive and running. So is it okay to hero in the circumstances? I think I, what I tell managers is, is yes, you can hero, but just tell everyone. You just tell your report, hey, I'm heroing you this one time, and, uh, and then just don't make it a habit. So the second mistake is not prioritizing hiring. Again, this kind of goes back into the IC frame of thinking where you just want to do things uh, yourself. You, you're worried about the ramp up time. You're worried about people not being able to do things as, as well as you can do them. But ultimately, it just causes a vicious loop because you get more and more underwater and then you don't have more time for hiring and then you get more and more underwater and, and it's bad. So you got to prioritize hiring early on. And then the third mistake is the, is the other side of the, the thing, which is not firing. 
There's a lot of managers out there that are just scared to fire people. Um, you, you've got it. You've got to keep that as an option on the table. If someone's not working out, you've, you've got to let them go. It's just selfish to the rest of your team. Um, and just because you're worried about having a difficult conversation with someone or maybe making the wrong judgment call, doesn't mean that you, that you should just drag your heels. And then the fourth mistake I see time and time again is ruinous empathy. And this is a phrase out of a book called Radical Candor. And this is about feedback. So every manager should be giving constant feedback to their reports. Because otherwise, the reports don't know if they're doing a good job or not. And if they don't know if they're doing a good job or not, then a lot of people worry about being fired all the time. Plus, they want to do a good job and they want to know how to improve. So if you're not giving them feedback, then they're not going to be able to improve. But what, what a lot of managers do is they give ruinous empathy feedback or empathetic, ruinous empathetic feedback. And what this, mean, what this means is they, they beat around the bush. They make excuses when giving feedback. They, they, I, I call them weasel words, where they say we instead of you. Um, and there's, there's all sorts of these words. I've written in the manager's handbook a bunch of feedback, and I've taken some ruinous, empathetic feedback that I've seen our managers write, and I've rewritten it to be more direct. Because the thing is, you're doing no one a favor by acting with ruinous empathy. Because ultimately, your team member is there, they're not going to get the message, they're not going to improve, and you're, they're going to end up getting fired all because you couldn't give them proper feedback. What, what do you think causes that for? I want to dive into that fourth one a little bit because I think that's interesting. What do, you, what do you think causes that in most managers? And I, I've got a theory. I think there's parts of it, which is a lot of people that rise kind of in the ranks of, of companies. Um, you know, and I think this is a. This, this is definitely in some respect an overgeneralization anecdotal, but I, I find a lot of peer leaders or folks that either, whether it's starting companies, whether it's rising companies, um, like to be liked, right? And like to be in front of an audience, like to be in front you know, of people, like to be kind of leading a, a ship. Do you think, do you find that it's, you know, it's more so that managers have this kind of ruinous empathy because of that type of personality trait, which is somewhat inherent in in leaders of these companies, do you, or you know, on the other side as a barbell, do you find it's more so because of some of the things we were talking about earlier, which is there's really no school or thought or training, you know, on how to be a good manager, right? A lot of it is this kind of ad hoc reading uh, application in your own setting, et cetera. Um, you might actually yeah. disagree with both of those. Well, how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, well, like to be liked is kind of selfish. If if you if you're not if you're not uh, giving people feedback, you're not improving a team. You have team members that are not performing. Then you're just being selfish to the rest of your team. I think I think there are two main reasons why this happens. The first is that people generally avoid conflict, and the reason for that is that whenever they anticipate conflict, they feel fear. They feel fear to the ego. Hmm. And the body doesn't differentiate between fear to the ego and fear to the mortal self. 
So it, it has exactly the same beha behavior and characteristics in the body. You, you feel tight and hot-headed and, and you feel like clenched in your, in, your, in your chest. And this is whether you, you come across a, a lion or whether you're giving someone feedback and you're potentially creating conflict. And I think this is because for many thousands of years, create, creating a conflict with another human could get you killed. I, it is only very recently that that has changed. But I think we're still programmed for that. So people avoid conflict. And then I think the second reason why they do this is because they tell themselves a story. If I just be nice to my new report and don't, you know, give them this tough feedback and, uh, and, and just ingratiate myself, then maybe they'll be my friend. And then maybe in the future, they'll take my feedback better. But it's a full story. It never works out like that. Ultimately, people won't respect you. They won't learn. They won't grow. And ultimately, you're doing them a disservice. That's so interesting, the way you frame the fear piece. Um, and that's actually where I was pausing and kind of noodling on, which is this idea of you know, intrinsic kind of fight or flight, hunter gatherer type human reaction to fear, you know, versus fear of uncertainty in, in, a, in a business type context or so. Um, I know you wrote pretty extensively um, about fear in the manager's handbook. Talk a little bit more, kind of double, if we double click it in a little bit more on this kind of concept or idea of fear, how it plays out in companies, both whether at the employee level, at the leadership level, et cetera. Talk a little bit more kind of about that, about the concept of fear and really how it plays out in companies. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, although we have different types of fear or, or different scenarios that we experience fear, fear of ego, of, of death of ego, fear of death of mortal self, we experience them in our body the same way, like you said, fight or flight. Um, and, but the truth is, you know, a piece of feedback from your boss is unlikely to result in your untimely death. And, uh, you know, giving that humiliating bad speech at a company party won't result in being hunted down by a pack of wolves. And, but the thing is, our mind is still in this ancient place. We over-index fear. And I think fear is useful in the sense of, hey, there's this thing over here that probably needs my attention. But when we start acting on that fear and making decisions based by that fear, that's when we start running into problems because those decisions are not logical. You know, fear is a very base level emotion. It's programmed us at the machine code level. And then when you're in a state of fear, the adrenaline starts pumping, your higher brain functions shut down, uh, you know, preparing us to escape or fight or maybe even freeze. And there's no complex problem solving, weighing pros and cons, taking time to process. Um, so it's clearly not a great place to be making a logical decision from. Yeah, I think one of the things, Alex, and as I was reading the manager's handbook, you know, partly I've been using it as a resource for myself and then partly, of course, in preparation for our discussion. I, I think what you're pointing out and the nuances you're getting into is actually what I found, you know, so fascinating about manager's handbook, right? Which is, 
the amount of importance and detail, especially in the you know, in the first chapter of the outset, you placed on mental and physical health. You know, neither of those are common topics you typically expect to find in a in a management book, right? Typically, the space is reserved for you know, I'll say, quote unquote, you know, business principles, right? Um, and we we talked a little bit about you know why you decided to carve out or kind of focus on those areas. This idea of you know, take care of yourself first, you know, before others. What are the, what are some of the elements on on those two topics, though, both on kind of mental and physical health, that you feel is most important, you know, for leaders to have that kind of self awareness or gain self awareness, um, you know, that often misses. I'll, I'll mention a few tools that I found really interesting. So the first of it is this tool called conscious leadership, and there's a book out there called The Fifteen Principles of Conscious Leadership. And I could safely say that this book changed my life. I highly recommend reading it. It is a way to be curious, to be what they call above the line, to shift and, and talk about context over content. Um, it's, it's, re it's really fascinating. We give it to everyone at Clibbit before they join the company and it's how we practice things internally. Um, but I can't say enough good things about that. And then the second tool that I really like is Enneagrams. So Enneagrams are basically a CAT scan in terms of self-awareness. And they basically, well, there are, there are nine different types of Enneagrams. They really tell you about yourself and how you interact with other people. And it's been incredible. Not only in my company, we get everyone who joins the company to do their Enneagram, but also in my personal life and my relationships. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I love the Enneagram idea. I'm a firm believer in MBTI also, and kind of, and I know that's a different concept that's similar and related, right? Especially mm -hmm. when it comes to team construction. What mm -hmm. have you found? I think one of the things that's been most interesting uh, in, in, in actually applying those concepts is working through with folks on the team of, you know, there's really not an inherent, you know, good or bad or right or wrong to any of the, any, any of the nine Enneagrams I would imagine, or certainly not, you know, the right. 16 permutations, right, of MBTI, but it's hypercritical to be self-aware of those elements and aspects to put a well-functioning and productive team together. Yeah. You know, we, what, one of the theories of why we have consciousness is, it's basically a storytelling machine to reduce risk. Hmm. So, so you go out in the world and your, you, your conscious brain, your little narrator in your head is telling you stories about, you know, why that person cut you off or what that person's going to do next. And the idea there is to try and predict the future and reduce, reduce risk. But when you turn that prediction machine back inwards on yourself, there's some kind of barrier there. It, People are just really bad at understanding themselves, which is why the, we all have therapists. You know, it's such a big industry. And Enneagrams is, is a really good way of understanding yourself, and, and so is getting regular feedback. Let's talk, um, let's talk COVID-19 and, and talk remote. Um, you and I were talking about it a little bit before we started the episode. Uh, you know, just the challenges of, of leading a company during this time. Um, it's, it's a time unlike any other. Um, and it's it's not a time that is only required of 
you know, leadership of, you know, the business or business principles or strategy or, you know, or so on. But it's, it's really a time in which, um, you know, folks are, folks are struggling, right? Or folks are, um, you know, we're, I feel like we're learning about ourselves as much as we're learning about each other and, and working with each other um, and interacting with different stressors, you know, every, every day. Um, before diving in, you know, too much on, on that side, I, I want to talk about one element of, of the byproduct of the pandemic, which is remote work. Right, forty percent of of Clearbit, you know, had, had been remote, and obviously, you know, that's been accelerated, you know, seemingly overnight by COVID. Um, let's talk about kind of pre-COVID. What was the philosophy behind, you know, hiring such a significant portion of the company to be remote? It's obviously becoming, you know, in vogue now for folks to talk about how the future of work is so pan obviously remote, and you know, teams moving remotely, et cetera. But um, you know, you you guys had forty percent of the company remote before COVID. So talk a little bit more about that that logic. And yeah, that. yeah, sure. Um, and to give you context, like you said, forty percent of the company was remote, and we we're about a hundred people at this point. And the reason why forty percent of those people were remote was because we didn't have a choice. <laughs> we wanted to hire software engineers, and we couldn't afford any in San Francisco, so we didn't have a choice there. It wasn't really a um, a decision that we uh, consciously made. It was it was just something we had to do, and it actually worked pretty well. Although I would say now I've experienced a hundred percent remote company, we kind of limped along as a hybrid. All of the uh, management, you know, all the exec team a lot of the conversations were happening in the office. So I'm not sure we had a great remote experience prior to COVID, um, quite honestly. And I've learned a hell of a lot through uh, being 100% remote. Yeah, for a long time, I was in denial. And I was in denial that I was running a 100% remote company. And I guess I just, I missed the office and... I, we had an incredible setup there, you know, we had chefs and a DJ booth and, and I, and I missed all of that. And then I came to terms with it and I realized that, yes, we are hundred percent remote. I need to embrace it. I need to become a really good remote CEO. And so the first thing I did was started buying equipment and it's kind of crazy that I've just been using my laptop three months into COVID, but that's exactly what I've been doing. So now I've got a monitor and, and mic set up. Hmm. Uh, and then the second thing I did was I started going out and interviewing the CEOs who'd done remote really well. So I interviewed the CEO of Zapier and the CEO of GitLab. And those interviews are going out soon, but basically I peppered those CEOs with questions about how to make remote work. Um, so check that series out. Yeah, it's um, it's very different. I had Mike, one of the co-founders of Zapier, on you know probably 20, 25 episodes ago, and we spent the whole episode talking about remote. Um, and I actually found myself re-listening to it, um, you know, about a month in, when it was when it was kind of obvious that we weren't going to be going back to the office anytime soon. Um, it is very different um, running a company remotely and successfully running a remote-first company as opposed to kind of placating management principles or, or ideals of, you know, an in-person company just, you know, via web or via, 
uh, via internet. You, you've made a note before of kind of the distinction, and I think this is right, right, of being a distributed company versus a remote company. Talk a little bit more about the difference, you know, in terms of the way that you categorize those, and then maybe double click a little bit more into some of those aspects um, that, that you've instilled, you know, as a remote first CEO now. Yeah, well, I think the only real difference between distributed and remote is one, you have little office hubs, yep. kind of Atlassian style where they have a hub in every city and people aren't super remote. And then the other one is Zapier style where everyone is just working from home. Um, but yeah, I don't think you need to go into the office every day. Um, I miss our office, but I'm actually getting pretty used to remote. And surprisingly, when we asked uh, the team at Glibit if they wanted to stay remote or not after all this ends, a good half of them who had never said that they wanted to be, sorry, who hadn't been remote previously, now want to be remote, hmm. um, which is fascinating. I think it just works a lot better for people's schedules. I think people can re realize they can actually, if they work hard, they can get a, a three-day weekend because they're not getting distracted throughout the, the week. And there's a lot of benefits. They can go to the gym in the middle of the day. They can look after their kids. They get you know, more time with their families. Uh, so while it's not easy, especially during these times, you know, when people are working at home, especially with young kids, I totally understand that. And some people are highly extroverted and, and miss the office. I do think the future is going to be where companies have maybe one remote, one office, one HQ that people get onboarded at. Maybe you meet at once a year for the company offsite or something. Um, but the most of the company will be remote going forward. And, uh, and I actually think, you know, when I when you talk to these CEOs who run remote companies, there's actually a Nirvana level of remote, where remote companies operate better than uh, in-person companies, and I'm starting to see that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's a lot of element, there's a lot of mechanics that you know, kind of a, a more traditional company mindset um, contends with and, and prevents in going remote, right? Things like you you just mentioned, right? Kind of this idea of kind of control over employees. And, that, and, and I think there's intuitive things that are huge advantages in remote um, that can be solved, you know, really via culture, right? So I think if you take that kind of control over employees idea, you know, I think if you treat employees as adults, right? And you hire well and you put the right systems in play, uh, people are going to get the work done. They're intrinsically motivated. And candidly, it frees up and allows for a lot more schedule flexibility. Right. Um, that that all being said, I think being remote certainly does have its own inherent challenges. Right. Many of which are in line with challenges at I think the human psyche level. What have you found to be the most challenging aspects of running a remote company? I, I've certainly found that you know communication. I think unilaterally. I think when when I talk to leaders of companies unilaterally, I hear communication consistently to be a challenge, right? Over communication and over communication, it feels like you can't communicate enough. Um, I've personally felt like that's heightened, uh, if anything, in running a remote company. A lot of the spontaneity, right, of in of in office type interactions have been removed. Um, there's there's a bit more latency and lag 
right, in, in, um, in certain types of interactions. What are, the, what are the challenging aspects, Alex, you've found of running a remote company? And, and what are the mechanics of some of the things you guys have done or at least started to do or experiment with to solve for those? Yeah, well, look, control's not a problem. I think people, CEOs and managers who worry about control are the kind of people that use words like telecommute. I, I, I think uh, just treat everyone like adults. They all have OKRs, they have targets. They can hit those targets. It doesn't matter if they uh, you know, go to Disneyland half the week. As long as they're hitting their targets, it's fine by me. Um, there's two major issues with remote. The first is async communication, and the second is social cohesion, or I like calling it the, the loneliness problem. So async communication is something that a lot of people are not used to. There's a lot of people in this world who are used to being loud in meetings. You know, there are a lot of great talkers out there. A lot of consultants, uh, great talkers, you know, and and they and 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 also some people just think with talking, and that's totally fine and understandable. But in a remote company, asynchronous communication is key. So the way this works out: a, try and have as few meetings as possible. Uh, B, when you do have meetings, make sure there's a shared screen in that meeting at all times either on an Asana project or a uh, Google Docs, a shared Google Docs that everyone can collaborate on. Then, rather than asking everyone what they think about an idea, ask them to type. You can all type at the same time, and it means that people think about things a bit more. And it means that the introverts come out a little bit more. And this is obviously much better if you don't have the meeting at all. It's not always not possible. But um, you know, over time, I think companies get more used to it where you have a decision that needs to be made. Someone writes up the decision, the various pros and cons of each approach. The rest of the team comment on it, and then a decision is made. Asynchronous communication is key. Writing over talking is key if you want to get remote working. And then the second is the loneliness problem. This is a tough one tough not to crack and you'll notice companies like GitLab who have over a thousand employees that have been remote uh, they will formalize informal communication and what that means is they will try and replicate some of that uh, water cooler chat and you need to do something like that in your company as well so you need quiz nights, you, we do breath work, we do meditation, we do yoga, we cook together, we do a, a lot of activities. And you need, you need this uh, for people to feel integrated into the company so they don't feel isolated and, and lonely. And you need it so that people can bond with each other and have shared experiences. The key thing is though, you've got to reduce the number of meetings. If you had the same number of meetings as you did before, or you have more, but now you have Zoom calls where someone is doing a guided meditation, no one is gonna turn up with that because they're just gonna get sick of Zoom all day. So those two things are the things that are key to get right. 
Alex, as we, as we round out the conversation, what's the most critical thing you think leaders and managers need to internalize uh, during the era of COVID? And, and I mentioned we were talking a bit you know, about some of these ideas kind of before the podcast. Um, it's, it's a very interesting time to not only you know, be a leader of a company, really to be in, in a company, right? I mean, businesses and industries are seeing systemic shocks in ways in which we've we've never seen and you know hopefully we don't see again you know although um i think we likely will you know there'll be some sort of type of event that produces this type of shock in the future invariably how have you thought about your own um your own leadership during this time and and what have you talked about with your you know your leaders in the company as they talk to their teams also well my message to other ceos and leaders is that everything has fundamentally changed. You are now running a 100% remote company, and you probably will be for the next six months. If you just try and replicate the office, but at home, you will fail, and your company will fall behind and might fail too. So you need to get really, really good at remote. You also need to be a therapist. You need to really understand emotions. You need to read books like Hold Me Tight and The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership because people react irrationally during these times and you need to deeply understand people and be empathetic. And so those are my, those are my two messages. Yeah, I I love that because again, it's, it's, um, much easier said, I think much harder done and practiced. Um, you know, Alex, this has been a super interesting conversation. I, I really enjoyed having you on and, and a lot of the management principles, you know, you've written about, and I think we'd, we could talk, you know, for hours on, we didn't have time to dive into today. So we'll, we'll definitely need to, um, I'm going to commit you and book you into a, a future show, even though it's a, it's another quote unquote meeting, <laughs> but we'll, we'll dive into, you know, we'll definitely have to dive in, you know, to those management principles. I, I think it's, it's such an interesting topic and it's, it's something we, we don't talk enough about, or, you know, I should say we don't talk enough about in the right way about. So um, really appreciate the time. You know, I know how busy you are also. So really appreciate the time in, in coming on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much.